You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, good evening, good evening. Can everyone hear me sort of in the back? Okay, great. Uh, well, it's, it's great to see a, a, turn, a nice turnout tonight. My name is uh, Ted Gerber. I'm the faculty director of the Center for Russia, East Europe and Central Asia, uh, otherwise known as Krika, and I will be moderating tonight's session. So part of Krika's mission is to uh, share with the community some of the expertise that the University of Wisconsin has, um, and also to interact and to communicate and to find out what the interests and concerns of both the university and the larger Madison community are. So that is really the purpose of tonight's event. Um, we bring to you five experts uh, who are affiliated with Krika and also with University of Wisconsin. And um, I, I'll tell you what, I'm not gonna introduce them all at once. Instead, I'll introduce them one at a time. I'll ask them each to come up and speak individually. And because uh, we have only an hour and a half, and I want to make sure that we have a full half hour for discussion. I've asked each of them to limit their introductory remarks to 10 minutes. So I'm going to ask the audience to please hold off on your questions. There'll be a Q&A period of 30 minutes after the speakers have had the chance to uh, present their initial thoughts. So uh, just to lay out a few basic facts. Uh, so on February 24th, Russian troops attacked, uh, invaded Ukraine after several months of a, a buildup and after Russian President Putin made some demands to the West that the, or to the United States that were ultimately rejected. Uh, in the last almost week now, we've seen intense military fighting, intense fighting. Uh, initially, the advance of the Russians did not go as quickly as planned as they had envisioned. And so now we're in a period where several major Ukrainian cities are encircled and subject to severe bombardment. And we're, we've seen already many civilian casualties, military casualties. There's been a major flow of refugees to Europe who are fleeing Ukraine. Uh, the world has responded to this attack with widespread condemnation, including perhaps most notably for Americans by the President of the United States, President Biden, who last night in his State of the Union speech, which I imagine many watched, condemned Russia's aggression uh, spoke on the need for unity on behalf of uh, NATO and the other allies in the United States and announced another set or, or a small number, but reaffirmed the commitment of the United States to using economic sanctions as a way to make life difficult uh, for President Putin and to essentially punish Russia for this move. So uh, today we have five different perspectives on uh, various aspects of this war, uh, which my colleagues will present. And so without further ado, then I will introduce our first speaker, who is Professor Yoshiko Herrera, who's Professor of Political Science here at UW-Madison. And she is going to give us some background on why Russia attacked, how did it come about that this attack took place. So I will turn over the floor and I'll ask the speakers to step to the podium so that those in the back can see. Great, thank you. Okay, so I just wanna note, um, for people in the back, there's some seats up here, so you might as it's it's going to be a while, so you can walk in the other door, or sit down if you like. <laughs> okay, um, so 
Can oh, I'm doing this. Sorry. What? Where does this go to? Oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. Okay. All right. Um, so let me just preface my remarks um, about why why Putin invaded with the following, which is that sometimes explanation borders on rationalization. So making it understandable, like this explains it, we can understand it, it was a rational thing to do. And I, I wanna be clear that I have thoughts on various background things that I think led up to this point, but ultimately all of the background things that I'm going to talk about were things that up until 10 days ago could also have led us to a point where Putin decided to back down, send the troops home and not start this um, invasion. So I wanna make clear that there was a decision last week to invade Ukraine unprovoked, a war of choice, and, and there's nothing that was inevitable about it. So I just wanna be clear on that. In talking about background factors, it doesn't lead to the inevitability because it was still a decision that um, did not have to be taken. It's still a decision which, um, which can, be, can be stopped. You know, a ceasefire could be declared at, at any point. But anyways, let me talk about three factors that I think are, are related to how we got here. And that has to do with the 1990s, um, the imperial ambitions of, of Putin and the, the threat of democracy that, that he thought Ukraine posed. Okay, um, so the 1990s, I'm bringing up the 1990s because I think one of the factors that is a factor in support for Putin, he's been in power since um, the end of 1999. So he's been in power 22 years. And why does he still have a fair amount of support within Russia? The 1990s, I think, had a couple of things that led to a, a lot of disenchantment. The first is that um, privatization and economic reform in Russia almost from the start went awry. And the result very quickly by the middle to end of 1990s was very high level of inequality, the rise of these oligarchs, and for a lot of the population, not a very good outcome. And it culminates with the 1998 financial crisis, devaluation, et cetera, which happens just one year before Putin comes to office. Second is that for a lot of people in Russia, Russia in the early 1990s did all the things it was supposed to do. It took on the debt of the USSR. It pulled back, Soviets pulled back troops from Eastern Europe. There were 15 successor states and various things went right. And the result of this in terms of international security and the international order is that whether you think NATO expansion is good or bad, many people in Russia believe that there was a deal that NATO would not, not be expanded in exchange for reunification of Germany. That's a widely shared belief there. So NATO enlargement is wrapped up in this humiliation of the end of the Soviet Union. And this is all tied into this weakness of Russia was weak at the end of the 90s. It did all these things the West wanted and it got little out of that. Putin comes to power and largely on the basis of rising oil prices, he oversees almost a decade of double digit growth. And so by the end of the 
let's say until the next financial crisis, 2007, eight, things were looking pretty good for Putin. But the, the negativity around the 90s is a, is a core part of his rule. And it's a core narrative that feeds into this anti-NATO sentiment. The next factor that I think is really important to understand is what I call Putin's imperial ambitions. So um, Andre is going to talk more about this in the next presentation, but Ukraine and Russia have a shared history and culture going back centuries. But um, there's an important break. Uh, and the important break is that Ukraine becomes a sovereign independent state in 1991, as do the other former Soviet states. And this is something that Putin basically never really accepts. He always believes that there should have been a, a the Soviet Union should not have broken up. He called it the worst tragedy of the 20th century. B, the Soviet, uh, in addition to the Soviet Union not, not supposing to have bro broken up, Russia should exercise influence, a sphere of influence over what they call the near abroad or the former Soviet states. And he's definitely interested in having states be compliant with Russia's views. It doesn't mean you have to invade every state. You can have a state like Belarus that does whatever Putin says. You can have a state like Kazakhstan, whose government also, while independent from Russia as an independent state, it, it also goes along basically with, with what Russia wants. So Putin has this view that Russia should have power and influence over the former Soviet states, which means they should not be allowed to join alliances like NATO, which is an anti, considers an anti Russian organization alliance. And I would say his view of Ukrainians, especially that's become clear in recent years, is also to deny not just the statehood of Ukraine, but the nationhood of Ukraine as well. But this is not just saying um, Ukrainians are not a nation, but more, I think, to the point is to consider them something like apostate Russians, that they're sort of Russians doing the wrong thing and they need to be brought back into the fold. So, this, you know, this could be a view, but um, there's a couple of things that make that just, from my opinion, very hard to understand that miscalculation. Number one is that Ukrainians since independence have been pressing recognition of this famine that they consider to be a genocide from the Soviet period that they call the Holodomor. This is, in my opinion, a central facet of modern Ukrainian national identity. Nobody that says they're Ukrainian would say, I don't know anything about that, I don't have an opinion. It is a constitutive factor of Ukrainian identity and it makes Ukrainians 100% anti-Soviet. I mean, you don't say this regime tried to perpetrate genocide and, um, uh, and we're indifferent to whether we have a reimposition of a Soviet style, style rule. So I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Ukrainians would feel very strongly about not reimposing any kind of Soviet Russian rule over them. And we'll hear more about that, more about that later. Okay, so this misunderstanding by Putin in terms of his, his understanding of Ukrainian national identity and his, his assumption that Russia should have power over the former Soviet space, I think is, is important. Um, okay. But why is, why is, what about the rest of the former Soviet states? Why is Ukraine so special? I think that one of the issues is that Ukraine and Russia, because of their shared culture, sometimes with social identity groups, you get um, 
in group policing, not with groups that are so far apart from you, but groups that are similar to you. And you care a lot about differentiation among groups that are supposed to be part of your group, people doing the wrong thing, et cetera. So this liminality of Ukraine is important. But in addition, Ukraine has had two successful social revolutions where people rose up and essentially kicked out pro-Russian governments. And that's something that Putin is absolutely sensitive to because he is a dictator increasingly using violence to, to maintain power. And he absolutely doesn't want a social revolution in Russia. That's why his main opponent, uh, main opposition candidate, Alexei Navalny is currently in a penal colony, actually currently in the middle of a show trial right now. Um, so the two social revolutions are important uh, for Putin. In addition, democracy uh, that went along with that is a threat, plus Ukraine moving west. And um, stopping Ukraine, I would argue, gives Putin, that is stopping Ukraine from joining NATO, from moving west, et cetera, gives Putin an opportunity to redo the humiliation of the 90s, that you can reset this. Like, and it's a, it's, a, it's a continuation of 2014, where Putin is saying, Ukraine is not going West, he's not going to NATO. NATO uh, and the West objects and Putin says, I'll show you who's boss, which he did in 2014. And I think this unfortunate war is, is part of that. Okay, but uh, I'm almost wrapping up here. This is a massive miscalculation in my opinion. Why? Putin believed the Ukrainians uh, would not resist that the Russian troops would be met as liberators, this is, I think, playing out in terms of the poor organization and so far um, not very successful military operations. In addition, I think Putin was bolstered in his confidence by, by his use of violence in Chechnya, in the Second Chechen War in the early 2000s, which he got away with, by the, uh, putting in troops in Georgia in 2008, by 2014 Crimea, by the bombing of civilian bu buildings in Aleppo in 2015. When Putin looks at these things, he says, look, I got away with it all those times. What's going to happen? Nothing. Sanctions will be weak. The US is divided. Anyways, a lot of Republicans support Putin, or they did so up until last week under Trump. And he just gambled that the world would not care. And I think all of these areas were um, turned out to be wrong. Okay, so what can we expect? Um, uh, that's just a chart of the ruble falling. Um, that's, there's gonna be more of that. Unfortunately, I think there's probably gonna be more violence, but as you can see just from the news, there's a very strong international reaction. I think that's even growing. Maybe this is hope over analysis, but I, I hope and I think that there are there, there's potential for protests and splits within the elite in Russia. Um, but no matter what, the Russian economy is going to be seriously damaged, I think, for decades. And we'll hear more of that later as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so our next speaker is Andre Ivanov, who is Associate Professor of History at UW Platteville and also a Creek affiliate. And Andre is also the author of a book called A Spiritual Revolution, The Impact of Reformation and Enlightenment in Orthodox Russia, 1700 to 
1836. And I mentioned this because we should congratulate Andre for two big impressive awards that his book was given just last year by the Association for Slavic, East European and Eurasian Studies. Uh, he, as a historian, is going to address the history, the, the sort of historical evolution of uh, Ukrainian national identity. So please welcome Professor Yelena. I should just mention that I, I'm originally from Ukraine. I have close family that are trying to make their way to the Polish border right now. So it's really stressful time for me personally. Um, so my presentation is right here. And I'm gonna talk about, address this misinformation that um, you know, sometimes appears here and there that Ukraine never had a state <coughs> or that it's recent or that Lenin created Ukraine. And there was no Ukraine before Lenin that it's somehow all sort of made up and there's no real such thing as Ukrainian state. And I'm going to address this misinformation very clearly that Ukraine has a very rich history of statehood. In fact, it's much richer in some ways than the statehood of many other Euro Eastern European nations today. You look at Bosnia, when did Bosnia first establish a state? This is 1991. Does Bosnia have an experience with an early modern statehood in 17th century, 18th century? No. What about Estonia? What about Latvia? What about Slovakia, 1993? Uh, Ukraine has a deeper and richer experience with statehood than a lot of other nations in Europe today. And let's not forget, by the way, that Germany uh, is, um, is younger than the United States. Germany was founded in 1871. So if you think about the statehood. All right, so early modern state Ukraine. Ukraine has... Um, uh, an early modern period of statehood that started with the so-called Cossack uprising, Ukrainian Cossack uprising, Khmelnytschina or Khmelnytsky uprising. Um, essentially, most of what is today Ukraine, the territory of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, uh, was part of Poland uh, up until middle of the 17th century. But because of various uh, uh, policies of the Polish-Lithuanian uh, uh, Commonwealth monarchy, including the uh, serfdom, the policies of serfdom, the um, uh, uh, Catholicization of the Orthodox population and so on, Ukrainians and Ukrainian Cossacks, that is the paramilitary uh, Ukrainian uh, people decided to rise up. And this was a major uprising that coincided with another sort of uh, uh, history, historical event in Poland known as the Deluge, in which uh, Ukrainian uh, peasants, Ukrainian Cossacks, former serfs, were able to take up arms and drive away their Polish overlords. And in 1649, uh, the leader of, uh, um, of uh, this uprising, Bohdan Khmelnytsky, um, entered Kiev. And here you have a painting of Bohdan Khmelnytsky entering Kiev, being blessed by the Orthodox clergy who liberated Kiev from, uh, from Polish Catholic control. And so Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukraine de declares, or Ukrainian people declare themselves as the hetman meaning a state ruled by the hetman. Hetman is a word that comes from German word Hauptmann, which means the, the chief, so the head. And the founder of the hetmanate, of the Ukrainian hetmanate state, Khmelnytsky was proclaimed the sole autocrat of Rus. So hearkening back to the uh, medieval state Kievan Rus, which was a common state uh, for the three nations today, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. So here you have the foundation. Now, uh, Poland fought back against Ukrainian uh, rebels and Ukrainian uh, uprising um, uh, had to turn to an ally in order to survive. 
So Ukrainians turned to Russia. And in 1654, an alliance with Russia was declared that allowed for Ukrainian hetmanate to uh, at least preserve some territory uh, uh, that, that from, uh, from Poland. So as you see here in this map over here, this is the, the territory of the Ukrainian hetmanate from 1654 until 1764. And this is the free areas of Cossacks or paramilitary settlements um, that also continued until that uh, roughly that period of time. They were abolished a little bit earlier. So between 1654 and 1764, uh, Ukrainian hetmanate or Ukrainian statehood was developed uh, or, or, or had its own sort of century of development with its own laws, administration, military. They had their own military formation. So talking about demilitarization of Ukraine, well, Ukraine has a martial culture going back to the Cossack era. Ukrainians were used to living in uh, uh, sort of this, this uh, uh, martial cultural milieu. Uh, you have Magdeburg charter rights for Ukrainian cities, official language was developed, university education, and foreign relations that, that the hetman could maintain with any country in the world except Poland and Turkey. And in 1710, there was even a constitution, a Ukrainian constitution. So during this period of time, there's a lot of uh, you know, give and push between the, the hetmans, the leaders of Ukraine and Russia. And the relationship between Russia and the hetman were not very, you know, they were not always very clearly sort of, uh, um, you know, friendly, you know, at points where the Russian Tsars try to push their authority too far in the hetmanate, Ukrainian hetmans would resist or would find other ways to sort of push back against the Tsars encroachment upon their rights. So in 1764, Catherine uh, II, after, um, after seeing sort of the century of, of negotiation and, and, and pushing back and forth between the authority of the Tsar and the authority of the hetman, decided to abolish the hetman altogether. And so Ukraine was fully absorbed into the Russian empire. Now it's, worthy, it's worth to mention that in 18th century, other countries were also absorbed into Russian empire and lost their statehood, including Poland, which also lost their statehood and along with Lithuania ceased to exist. So Ukraine uh, was, uh, became part of the Russian empire. And the next period of Ukrainian statehood is when the Russian empire dissolved. And you had countries like Estonia emerging or Finland became independent or Latvia and so on. And so Ukrainian National Republic period from 1918 to 1921 was fell into that, into that uh, rough, you know, in, roughly into that uh, era of uh, dissolution of Russian empire and a declaration of independence by all kinds of former entities of that empire. And so Ukraine was part of that. Now there are three phases of Ukrainian independence starting from 1918. The first phase was sort of the liberal democratic phase uh, where um, or constitutional democratic phase or moderate socialists who were headed by Mikhailo Hrushevsky, Professor Hrushevsky is here and declared independence of Ukraine on 12th of uh, January, 1918. Here you have an image of the declaration of independence, hoping that at the upcoming um, a conference in Versailles, you know, Woodrow Wilson and 14 points and all of that, hoping that the United States and the allies would uh, eventually grant Ukraine uh, uh, full international rights of statehood, not just that they, you know, proclaim statehood. So they proclaimed their, their independence. And the first uh, phase of that was early 1918. In April of 19. 18, uh, Ukraine has a second phase of its statehood, the monarchist conservative state. This is when the German army, the 
and the uh, and the Austrian army essentially defeat the remnants of the Russian army, and so Ukraine allies becomes an ally of central powers of Austria and Germany, and um, the monarchist conservative uh, phase of uh, statehood of Ukraine involved the rise to power of uh, Pavlo Skoropadsky, as you could see him there in Kubanka, dressed in Kubanka. Pavlo Skoropadsky was. Uh, kind of a representative of a conservative circle of landowners who wanted nothing to do with Bolsheviks, who wanted nothing to do with moderate socialists either, and who didn't like the constitutional liberal Democrats like uh, you saw with Hrushevsky. So they wanted restoration of the hetman of Ukrainian monarchy. And so that's the monarchist phase of Ukrainian independence. And the next phase was restoration of Ukrainian National Republic, which came with the defeat of Germany and defeat of central powers. That restoration uh, was carried by uh, more radical wings of Russian, of, of, uh, of uh, um, uh, political sort of currents that emerged at the, uh, at the ashes of the Russian empire, including the social Democrats. So the, the third government of independent Ukraine was a social democratic or, 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 uh, uh, or socialist non-Bolshevik government the first um, head of the directory or directoria of uh, uh, Ukrainska Narodna Respublika, uh, Ukrainian National Republic, was Vladimir Vinichenko, that you see him here. Um, the non-Bolshevik socialist government eventually falls. It allies itself with Poland. Poland played a game with, uh, with the White Army, with Wrangel, you know, trying to defeat the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks eventually defeat both the White Army and Polish Army. And uh, this is where the loss of Ukrainian statehood comes in. Ukrainian statehood is lost with uh, the creation of Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic, which was later Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, that's, that uh, was founded roughly in 1919, but there's another phase in 1921. So Ukrainian Soviet Socialist or Socialist Soviet Republic uh, was, uh, whether we could say that it was a state or not, that's probably, uh, you know, the answer would be no. Uh, this was not a phase in which Ukraine was a state, but because of the formation of USSR in 1922, uh, there was a desire by Soviet government and, you know, there was a Soviet uh, nationality policy push to allow as much national autonomy uh, to some of the republics in 1920s, at least, as possible without, of course, uh, letting them go economically, you know, in, in capitalist direction. So Ukrainian Socialist Republic uh, founded uh, USSR. It was one of the founding members of USSR. It was one of the founding members of the United Nations, by the way. Uh, interesting to note that unlike many other Soviet republics in USSR, Ukraine maintained its Ministry of Foreign Affairs or People's Commissariat of Foreign Affairs from 1921 to 1923. And then again, from 1944 to 1991, Ukraine had representation and vote at the United Nations and had foreign delegations and so on. Here you have Christian Rakovsky, the first foreign minister of Soviet Ukraine and chairman of Ukrainian uh, Socialist uh, Republic. So uh, the independence of Ukraine comes in 1991 with dissolution of Soviet Union. So just like the dissolution of Russian Empire, you have the rise of Ukrainian National Republic, dissolution of Soviet Union, you have rise of independent Ukraine again. Uh, uh, the state sovereignty was declared in 1990. You see that postal stamp from, from Ukraine uh, showing this state sovereignty. Independence was declared on 24th of August, 1991 to, here uh, you have jubilant crowds celebrating that. Uh, the first governments to recognize independent Ukraine were Poland, Canada, and Russian Federation with Yeltsin announcing that uh, on TV on December 2nd. 
All right, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Andre. Okay, next, uh, our next speaker is Kirill Ospavat, who is assistant professor in the Department of German, Nordic and Slavic here at UW-Madison. And he is going to address the question of how uh, the, the Russian public has responded to the attack. And for those standing in the back, by the way, there still are about you know, eight or 10 empty seats up here and you can come around the outside and slip in if you wish. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. So uh, yeah, I teach literature here at UW-Madison. I don't consider myself an expert in any of this, but I am from Russia. My family is in Moscow. I've been living it, following the news since I left Russia. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, and uh, Russian public opinion is, is uh, uh, kind of uh, what, what is public opinion. Now, I want to, before I go into that, I want to start by emphasizing that uh, as of now, I think uh, the, the major point which I cannot really contribute to is that as a general public, we should really. No, not, not yet. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We should really uh, uh, make an effort not to miss the agency of Ukraine as an independent state, as an independent actor, as a country which fights the war, not only the territory where the war is fought. And Andrei has spoken about the history of Ukrainian statehood, but also the way in which we talk about what is going now. It is very important to uh, emphasize to ourselves the agency. Ukraine is not just a territory, not just Russia's colony that is, uh, where things are unfolding. Uh, Ukraine is this nation that is fighting the war. And this is a, uh, a poster from uh, a protest in, in Ukraine, which has the famous slogan, Ukraine is not Russia. Uh, so the poster is, this one particular is in, uh, in Ukrainian. And this is a major thing, something that uh, uh, Professor Herrero suggests that Ukraine, Ukraine is a very, despite uh, speaking partially the same or a similar language in a lot of cases, Ukraine is a very different society from Russia. It is a society that is, has something that older political theorists called uh, civic virtue, a civic spirit, as opposed to Russia as being kind of currently a form of and moving fast towards a form of di dictatorship and authoritarianism. So very different uh, nations which have very different roles and approaches to, to this war. Uh, so uh, Russian, uh, the general state of Russian public opinion has been and society, and I am uh, relying here on the work of sociologists whom I've read, I'm not a sociologist myself, but it has been basically under Putin years defined by growing apathy. Putin's regime built on a, on a condition of public apathy. People uh, are pushed away from politics, uh, scared away from taking part in protests in uh, uh, exchange for some kind of economic stability, which is also has been uh, 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 disappointing for the Russian population. So a sense of economic disorientation and apathy is actually something that uh, uh, Putin's regime has uh, been seeing as its support, as opposed to something that undermines it. So what we are seeing now is we are seeing um, uh, polls that show uh, a lot of uh, that the majority of Russians support the war, but we also know that a lot of a lot of those people try actually to uh, ignore, uh, not uh, uh, to not actively support the war, but to actually ignore the reality of what is happening. Right? Uh, unlike 2014, unlike the occupation of Crimea, there has been no massive outpouring of sympathy with what is going on. There is no mass enthusiasm. There is apathy, apathy and a sense of uh, uh, complete kind of uh, uh, disorientation, you would say. 
uh, and this is the basic uh, as as long as there are any remnants of uh, public activity that are uh, allowed to exist in Russia. Uh, this is the background in which we can see the beginnings or uh, the, the first steps towards an anti-war movement, which could really change the face of Russia if it were to survive. Um, so uh, this is the number of uh, 585 people have been detained during anti-war protests across Russia just on March 12th. The total number of detained protesters since February 2024 is 7,474 people. So basically, uh, it's not just, uh, uh, basically the idea is that there is overwhelming police violence. They try to detain basically anyone who protests, they don't detain anyone. So the number of those who are, uh, uh, went out to protest is larger. But the truth is that it's a very violent regime that has prepared its population for about 10 years now uh, for the fact that it is actually dangerous uh, to, to uh, protest uh, um, uh, in public, um, but also on Facebook. Uh, they are, uh, tomorrow they are supposed to, uh, the Duma is supposed to discuss a law which will punish uh, any, uh, any help to the, to the enemy, to Ukraine, uh, or spreading uh, information in support of Ukraine with 15 years prison terms. Uh, and, and in this context, that, that are the numbers that we see that is overwhelming, underwhelming. Who knows? We'll see how it goes, but those are the numbers. This is a uh, uh, picture of the Moscow protest. I cannot actually do anything here than just give you some information, show some pictures, the pictures of the Moscow anti-war Moscow protest uh, in Moscow on 20, uh, uh, the first day of the war. Uh, that day or the next day, a thousand people were detained in Moscow alone. Uh, which was uh, uh, a surprising number for, uh, to me. Uh, and uh, this is a, uh, what has been happening is that people who are afraid to uh, go out and protest have been devising ways of uh, signifying protest without being caught. Uh, uh, graffiti uh, in the cities and in, in, uh, in uh, the subway. So this specific uh, poster is that this is a poster that uh, uh, celebrates the day of the Russian army, which was the day when uh, uh, the uh, uh, Russian invaded Ukraine, uh, February 23rd. And in the middle of this poster, which is all about Soviet symbolism of the victory in World War II, the Red Star and all, in the middle of this poster, uh, somebody wrote, the military is killing people. So this is one way in which the official symbolism of World War II is made to, con uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, open people's eyes to what is going on, because of course there's massive propaganda about how Russia was attacked, how Russia was forced into defending in itself, but also about how there is no actual war going on. So Russia was attacked, but there is actually no real war uh, going on, right? And this is obviously a very obvious symbol uh, no to war, open, uh, open your eyes. Uh, today, uh, four newspapers belonging to a single uh, publisher in uh, Yekaterinburg region on the Urals were, uh, came out with uh, the slogan, this madness must be stopped, uh, which is uh, a very brave thing to do for the publishing house, obviously, because you can trace who publishes a newspaper. Uh, the runs were immediately confiscated so four newspapers being published in four different towns on the same region, as far as I understand. Uh, the, the runs were confiscated. Maybe some of them got out, maybe not. I do not know, but uh, uh, obviously the, the uh, people printing it are at uh, significant risk. We do not know to what extent the government will actually prosecute all those crimes, whether the police system is actually prepared to start uh, 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 giving those prison, ter uh, prison terms. 
but this is what is happening now. This has, this has happened today. Uh, uh, and another group that has been forming uh, is a, uh, generally the Russian feminist movement has been very uh, active and resilient over the last uh, several years under the Putin regime. The feminist movement is probably the only, the most powerful uh, example of some kind of emancipatory movement with a new agenda that formed under those regime because traditional Russian mainstream Russian opposition clings back to things like democracy and human rights and uh, 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 constitutional rights that are uh, good and, and significant, but this is the agenda from, from the 90s, the same uh, words and concept that have been discredited already, right? And the feminist movement was something that brought things like uh, 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 kind of different kinds of new uh, ideas about, about uh, uh, human rights into the fold. So those feminists are organizing now, uh, uh, especially, especially against the war to uh, spread the word through uh, different techniques, uh, uh, sending out viral messages and communicating with people outside of the kind of this form of a rally, which the police are very much prepared at any rally in Moscow, you can easily find more police prepared to crush it than people who are uh, brave enough to, uh, to, to go out. This is the strategy that Putin has been developing for the last 10 years. And as of now, it's holding. So those uh, forms of kind of non-conventional smart resistance might be uh, might be our hope. Uh, and among the sources that I would recommend anyone to to uh, uh, look at uh, the texts and interviews with uh, Greg Uden, a major kind of political philosopher commentator in Russia. Uh, this particular interview is very dire in its pessimism. It actually includes a prognosis for a real World War III in case particular measures are not taken by the West. As of now, in this scenario, things are looking pretty optimistic. Uh, so his position is that he's pushing the Western audience. So he's addressing this to all of us here to go in a particular direction and maybe the West is. Uh, but I very much uh, encourage you to, uh, to so Greg Uden, to uh, mm, uh, look him up, uh, find his texts, they're available in English. Uh, and he's one of the commentators in Russia and generally reading uh, 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 thinkers and commentators who are there on the ground in Russia and Ukraine is something that uh, helps me uh, live through this day by day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jadil. Okay, uh, our next speaker is Jessica Weeks, who's Professor of Political Science and also H. Douglas Weaver Chair in Diplomacy and International Relations here at uh, UW-Madison. And uh, Jessica's gonna address the question of uh, what consequences the attack on Ukraine has had for the US and NATO, and what are the likely repercussions in terms of international security moving forward? All right, thank you so much for that introduction. So as Ted said, I'll be talking about the implications of this invasion, both for the US and NATO, and also thinking about international security going forward. So in a nutshell, the attack has huge implications for how we think about uh, European and NATO security, and also huge implications for international relations more broadly. So I, I really think that this is a war that historians and political scientists are going to study for a very long time, both why it came about and how it changed the world. 
So this map shows the basic situation before the invasion to give you some context of why this is such a watershed. So we have the NATO states here in green, uh, we've got Russia in orange, and then these gray countries are, are neutral countries that are not uh, currently part of NATO. So what exactly do we see here? So we see a small area of direct contact between Russia and NATO countries, but it's pretty small, it's isolated, and importantly, it's not right in the heart of Europe. So we've got the Baltics, obviously, but they're only connected to Poland by this very small land bridge right here. Um, we, we did have Russia already with uh, significant influence over Belarus, where there's a Russian-friendly dictator, as Yoey mentioned. And we also had Russian separatists with uh, movements in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, region that you've been hearing a lot of, about, so around here then also in Georgia. And then you also obviously had Putin's invasion of Crimea in 2014. So there had been Russian supported forces in Ukraine, but they were largely isolated to the South and the West. And they were very much focused on these so-called separatist regions, which is a whole broader Russian strategy, but it, it was limited in a sense. But the bulk of Ukraine, the, the Western part was obviously free. And Importantly, it provided a buffer against Russia in the very heart of Europe, right? So bordering on NATO countries like uh, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania. And also note that all of these allies that I just mentioned, they're not just part of NATO, they're also part of the EU. So this is, this is Europe, right? Okay, so then what happens? So then of course, over the last week, we've seen the Russian invasion whose goal is at a minimum regime change in Ukraine or at a maximum annexation of the country. So this is a map as of this morning, we see Russian forces, excuse me, moving in uh, from at least three different directions. Okay, so what does this all mean? So I'll give us another map to look at here, just a different angle in Europe for us to stare at. And so there are multiple worries here, military worries, social and economic. And I'll start with the military side. So here there are le legitimate concerns about further escalation and the broadening of the war. And I think that could happen in several ways. So first and most immediately, NATO forces are obviously trying to get supplies uh, to Ukraine as promised, but that bears some risks, right? You'll have these very tempting targets right around these borders, right? Where a lot of supplies are gonna be coming through. And, and the issue is that that can breed accidents. So even if there's no deliberate attack, what happens if a Russian missile or a plane accidentally strays into NATO territory or hits NATO forces and NATO is unable to interpret whether that was intentional or not, right? These are the kinds of accidents that historically have led to broader escalation. It's also possible that all of the European and Ukrainian aid that we're seeing, which I'll talk a little bit about more later, could actually provoke Putin into widening the war. So NATO's moving military equipment and so far as at least 22,000 troops into member states that border Russia and Belarus to reassure those states to enhance deterrence. But, and, and there's good reason for this, but the concern is that this could provoke Putin into escalating further. It's also possible that if he's facing domestic opposition at home and he sees a risk to his rule there, that he could, that he could lash out and, and escalate further as a way to make a gamble. Anyway, this is all very worrying, obviously, but it also has major implications 
for how Europe thinks about its security more fundamentally. So just to mention a few really major watershed developments over the last few days, we have German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announcing over the weekend that Germany is going to more than double its defense spending after more than 50 years of not wanting to do this. We've got the Italian prime minister telling uh, the Italian Senate just yesterday that it needed to ratchet up defense spending and getting essentially a standing ovation for that. We've got Finland and Sweden, longtime um, neutral countries contemplating NATO membership after more than, than seven, 70 years uh, not wanting to do that. And then obviously we have the US becoming even more emphatic in its support of NATO. So to summarize, a huge implication of this crisis is big changes on the defense spending side and new urgency in terms of strengthening Europe's defenses. Okay, but there are also major humanitarian concerns. So as of today, uh, I read that there are nearly 900,000 refugees, but that could get much worse. So the UN has projected that 4 million Ukrainians could arrive in neighboring countries just in the coming weeks. And as some context in the Syrian civil war, there are about six and a half million Syrian refugees, also a lot more internally displaced, but six and a half million who left Syria. And that was about a quarter of Syria's population. Now, Ukraine is even larger than Syria. Ukraine has a population of about 44 million and there's real risk of an extended insurgency there, right? So regardless of what happens in the coming days, if, if Russia doesn't withdraw, we could see violence that goes on for months or even years. So let's say that the same proportion of Ukrainians fled their country as Syrians had, that would be more than 11 million refugees going straight into the heart of Europe. That's like the entire country of Greece or Belgium or Sweden dispersing across Europe in an extremely short amount of time. So we're talking about major, major social dislocation, which could have huge humanitarian consequences, but also political and economic ones for the societies that absorb them. And of course, there are also finally, just briefly, be some other major economic consequences for the West, both because of the invasion and because of the sanctions, which Mark Kopovich will talk about shortly. So there are a lot of concerns about inflation, increases in oil prices, potential implications for the harvest next year, um, distribution of food, food prices. So uh, a lot of economic dislocation happening as well. All right, I'll conclude by talking just quickly about the broader geopolitical issues. So this photo is of Putin and Xi on the eve of the Beijing Olympics, where they declared that their relationship, quote unquote, has no limits. So a huge question on everyone's mind naturally is to what extent will China support Russia, give it a lifeline during these sanctions, um, or at, at, the, at the worst, could it even seize on this conflict to make a move on Taiwan? So I think I'm cautiously optimistic because I think that China is in a bind here. So I think on the one hand, it has some fundamental interests that it shares with Russia, right? Both countries think that the post-World War II liberal democratic international order is rigged, unfair, hypocritical, doesn't recognize the current power realities, that they don't like Western dominance. And so these two countries, Russia and China, are in a very important sense, natural allies in reigning in the West. So for that reason, we could think that China might be tempted to support Russia or at a minimum look the other way, which is what I would say it's been doing so far. On the other hand, 
China has prospered under the current world order, and it has very close economic ties with the West. With the West. So here's some relatively recent data on China's export markets um, from a couple of years ago. So where is China selling goods? And so what do we see? Uh, the, the, dark, the darker shade and also the larger size of the country represents greater exports. So, and again, this is from China's perspective. So we see that major exports with the US major exports with the EU collectively, also huge exports with democracies in Asia. So where is Russia on here? Well, it is really tiny. You have to look hard for it. Um, so China's exports, if you just look at this figure, are really dwarfed by the exports with all of these democratic countries that are lining up and unifying against Russia. And also keep in mind that Russia's economy is only 11th in the world, which might sound large, but it's smaller than South Korea. It's smaller than Canada. It's smaller than Italy. So it's not like China can make up for all of this lost trade if it, um, if it really uh, took a stand with Russia by, by, um, by developing closer ties with Russia. We, it just doesn't have the, the economy to allow that. Uh, on the import side too, trade with the West is just generally more important than trade with Russia. And finally, I think that China is watching and, and noticing how unified the West has been in its response so far. So here are pro-Ukrainian protests in Germany over the weekend. And then below we have Kamala Harris with Baltic leaders just a couple of weeks ago during the Munich conference, which was trying to avert the crisis. Or here are the results of the UN General Assembly vote, which happened just today, condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So Russia's only supporters, this is probably too small for you all to see, Russia's only supporters were Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, and Syria. Right? This is not a very impressive list of allies. China abstained, as did Iran, as did India. So there are certainly countries that are kind of trying to play it both ways. But does China really want to be an international pariah like Russia, which is how I read this list. So given that, I predict that China will largely sit tight, try to walk a very fine line, um, but I'm perhaps not quite as worried as, as others have been. So I'll stop here, but um, I know there's a lot more to talk about in the Q&A. Hey, thanks very much, Jessica. Okay, our final panelist then is Mark Koplovich, who is Professor of Political Science and Public Affairs, and also the Director of the Center for European Studies here at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And as has already been alluded to, he will address the topic of the sanctions and what impact they have had, how they are designed to work, and other, as well as other financial penalties imposed on them. Great, thank you. So the, uh, thank you everyone. Yeah. <laughs> The advantage of, uh, let's see here, there we go. Uh, the advantage of going last is you've heard what everybody said, the disadvantage is a lot of what you said. We're planning to say has already been covered, but I think I will, things I'm gonna say will fit in nicely. Um, so I'm gonna talk about the sanctions. I study the politics of international trade and finance. Um, and I actually wanna start with something that Yoey said about the massive miscalculation, right? I think what we've seen in the last week with the sanctions, the scope of them, the unity of them, uh, the damage they're already inflicting is uh, both speaks to the miscalculation as well as is revealing in some of the things Jessica was talking about, the massive power imbalance right, between the US and the US and the EU on the one hand and, and Russia on the other. So what are these sanctions? Um, 
this is the entire G7. So basically, you know, the Western countries, um, US, Europeans, Japan, Canada, UK, Switzerland, et cetera, basically everybody but China, who is a big player in the global economy and the global financial system, uh, putting up sanctions targeted at Russia and entities within Russia. Um, a huge demonstration of both the continued power and dominance, as well as the unity of the West and the global economy. So first off, what are they, right? This is a multi-pronged strategy. Um, if you think about how do you cut a country off from the global economy, the sanctions are basically targeting all of the different channels by which Russia is plugged into the global economy. So one thing you do is you try and uh, target the foreign exchange reserves of the central bank, right? Primarily to prevent them from buying and selling currencies and defend the value of the ruble. The second thing you do is you target the banking system, right? If you think about uh, finance is the oil that keeps the global economy running. If you make it um, hard or impossible for banks to, um, to buy and sell and lend money and participate in the global financial system, you can deeply damage a country. And the sanctions have targeted uh, the biggest banks, um, biggest state-owned banks in particular, Sberbank, VTB, uh, in the, the Russian financial system. Uh, the other thing you've probably read about is the targeting of specific individuals, right? Going after the assets of senior officials in the government, as well as the oligarchs. You may have read that the, the German authorities seized one of the oligarchs' yachts today. Um, uh, Roman Abramovich is now selling Chelsea Football Club. Uh, so sort of targeting the assets of, um, you know, the wealthy oligarchs that have been part of Russian politics for the last 20 years now. Uh, you might have also heard about SWIFT. Right. So the other thing is SWIFT and cutting off Russia from SWIFT. Um, my colleague Dan McDowell at Syracuse University came up with this analogy, so I can't I, I can't claim credit for it, but it's a good one. If you basically SWIFT is the thermostat and the heating ducts of the global financial system. If you think about the banks or the different rooms, finance is the air moving through your, your heating system. And what SWIFT is, is the sort of computer messaging system that lets banks talk to each other and tells banks, right, basically send money here, receive money from here and not. So if you're not part of SWIFT, um, and SWIFT, it's a corporation headquartered in Belgium, but the, the you know, sort of Western governments have deep influence over it, you can cut a country off. Uh, there's also export controls on what we could now sell strategic goods uh, to Russia, as well as blocks on imports from Russia in, in certain sectors. And finally, the cutting off of the Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline, right, the big second pipeline uh, that going from uh, Russia to the European Union that the German government has now uh, refused to certify. So really kind of going after all the ways in which Russia is plugged into the economy. Uh, and why? So one is to raise the stakes and the cost of fighting the war, basically impose massive costs on Russia, the Russian government, the economy, and the public, uh, for some of the reasons we heard about already, but basically making it politically and economically co economic costly to fight the war. The other is a show of financial force, right? And one thing I note here is this is a two-way signal, right? So one is very clearly the signal to Putin and the Russian government that the West means business, right? The other though, with sanctions, it's a signal to the domestic audience in the US and in EU countries that we are trying to do something, right? Jessica showed you the map of NATO. Um, we, uh, we don't have a treaty relationship with Ukraine, 
right? They're not a NATO member. We don't have the Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, uh, that we would have if, say, Putin had invaded Estonia or Latvia. We actually have a treaty obligation to come to their defense, right? So we don't with Ukraine. We've made it clear, and the West has made it clear, that we're not going to put troops on the ground. We might give them weapons. Uh, so this is a sort of show of force of what can you do if you've already made it clear you're not going to fight a military war, that you're, you're talking to the domestic public and we're trying to do something. Now, I wanted to spend a couple minutes talking about this power imbalance. So um, I study international finance. I argue about this with my IR colleagues about what makes you powerful in international relations. Money is what makes you powerful in international relations. The world economy runs on dollars. Okay, so uh, what you're looking at over here is the foreign exchange reserves held by governments in the world. 60% uh, dollars, it's been that way for about 50 years. People talk about the renminbi or cryptocurrencies replacing them. It hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. I'm happy to talk more about that in Q&A. Uh, but basically the euro, the dollar, the euro, the yen, and a handful of other currencies, that's what the world economy runs on, right? But it's mostly the dollar. If you look at loans, debt securities, foreign exchange transactions, basically the world economy runs on dollars. And while we think about Russia, uh, and Jessica sort of talked about this, while we think about Russia as one of the world's great powers when you think about military or nuclear weapons, they are basically a small, relatively unimportant economy when you think about the global economy. So this is trade, right? So these are countries' exports, the size of the circles, and then the ties between them you kind of have to squint to find Russia, right? You see why everybody thinks China is the next rising hegemon because they're basically now as big on the trade side as the United States. Over here is finance, right? And you have to squint to find Russia even more. You also have to squint to find China, right? So you see the US and the EU, basically the world economy on the financial side, the powerful states are the US, the EU, the Japanese, right? Throw in the Canadian, Swiss, British, et cetera. Um, but basically, Russia is very small. And on the trade side, too, when you think about how dependent are Western countries on trade with Russia, a lot if we're talking about European imports of gas, right? But aside from that, very, very small. These are German imports by country. There's Russia. Right? These are American imports by country, and you see Russia, right? And you see China by comparison, right? So the amount of leverage that Russia has is very, very small. And if you want to hit Russia where it hurts without engaging in a military fight, uh, financial and economic sanctions are what you would do, right? So the key questions with the sanctions, right? The first one is, what is the economic impact? And here you want to break it down into kind of the short versus the medium and long term. Uh, in the short term already, they have been devastating. Right? And I'll show you in a second. Um, the ruble already is in free fall. Russia is in the midst of a currency crisis. That's going to lead to inflation. Uh, that's going to make the cost of imports more expensive, even if you can buy them given the sanctions. Um, so there's going to be inflation shortages and a, a currency crisis in the short term. As we get into the medium and the long term, you start talking about banks collapsing, the government defaulting on its debt, uh, massive contraction. Some of the estimates for the next couple of years now are 5 to 10% um, contraction of the Russian economy, followed by big budget cuts and austerity. And then in the longer term, right, you know, if you're talking about, as already been mentioned, a crisis that's going to go on for years or a decade or whatnot, you only mentioned this at the beginning, the sort of long-term economic growth and development prospects of Russia um, are increasingly dim. Right there, you've already heard a lot of big corporations pulling out foreign direct investment, 
So this is not kind of short-term bank lending or bond financing. This is big infrastructure projects and corporate investment, setting down factories and things like that. So that's one aspect is the economic aspect. Will there be more? Almost certainly. I think you'll see more sanctions in number as well as the number of countries. You're going to see a ratcheting up of the sanctions are already in place, the types we've talked about. Um, and I think what you'll start to see also is secondary sanctions, right? So what are those? Those are sanctions on countries or actors that are third parties, right? So if, if you start to trade with Russia, right, as a country that didn't trade with them previously, maybe the US or the EU are going to go after you as well to try and kind of close off the channels. The broader question on the political impact is, will they work? Right, and there's a lot of literature on this and the sort of answers are, are mixed. The question really is compared to what, right? Mm -hmm. So will they work as a full replacement for fighting a war or a counter military invasion to push Russia out of Ukraine? No, right? But if you think about what is the benchmark, you might get a different answer. If the goal is to uh, strangle Russia, generate enough domestic unrest and possibly have the regime overthrown because of public protests, that might be something that, you know, down the line you, you, you could imagine seeing. What is the timeline, right, is, sort of, is one of the questions, right? How long, when you think about will sanctions work, are you talking about over the next six months or are you talking about over the next five years or 10 years? And we can, we can discuss that. Um, the other difficulty, though, is, and this is sort of the big question, I think, is it's not obvious what the West's strategic or military endgame is. It's not obvious what Putin's strategic or military endgame may be, right? But um, will sanctions work? The goal of the U.S., the EU, the G7 as a whole, it's not exactly clear um, what that goal is. So I'll skip past this quickly. The ruble is in freefall. You've seen that already, right? Um, what you have don't see in this chart is it it crashed by about 30 40 percent the uh russian central bank is using some of its reserves to prop it up and it keeps crashing back down right so they're burning through a lot of reserves and you can't see that up there it says uh, russia's foreign exchange reserves is 630 billion dollars a lot of money right so russia actually since 2014 has built up a war chest of foreign exchange reserves to do exactly this which is prevent the ruble from going into freefall right 630 billion dollars sounds like a lot of money right um turns out it's really only about 496 billion because a chunk of that is in gold and it's not liquid right much of that you can see over here much of that is actually held in central bank accounts and private bank accounts in Western countries. That's what the sanctions are going after, right? So if you think about how much money does Putin actually have in the war chest to defend the ruble, it's a lot less money, right? Which is why the, the, the ruble is in free fall right now. Uh, the other thing, the other question then is to think about what are the effects more broadly? Jessica talked a little bit about this. Um, effects on the global economy, and effects possibly here at home. And here you want to think about three channels. So one is the trade channel, another is the financial channel, and then kind of broader contagion. So uh, there are going to be higher commodity prices, right? I'll show you in a second. Russia's economy basically is entirely exporting um, oil, metals, and agricultural products, right? Um, and so we're going to see higher prices. You've already seen that with global oil prices. Um, that's probably going to add months or so to whatever we were obsessed about inflation right until uh, a week ago right we're not quite as obsessed about seven percent inflation now but we're still thinking about it and when we're going to return to normal inflation um and that probably pushes that out a little bit here in the us 
now the US is a lot less dependent, right? So not as dependent uh, on Russia for natural gas, also not as dependent on Russia for agricultural imports. So we're a little bit more insulated than the Europeans. Uh, another is the financial channel, right? So it turns out you can think about, well, are Western banks exposed to Russian banks? And if you destabilize Russian banks, does that maybe destabilize German banks or French banks or Austrian banks, right? And so that is a possible. The European, some European banks are heavily exposed. Again, the US is relatively insulated, right? The third spillover to the global economy is basically thinking about some sort of falling dominoes, right? If there's a big financial and banking crisis in Russia, maybe then you get one in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Maybe it spills over Greece and Italy. Their debt problems have not gone away. So, you know, we, in past waves of financial crises, things start in one country, right? And they spiral more broadly. Um, one possible way that happens is this, right? So if you've looked at American bond yields and German bond yields uh, this week, they have crashed because what happens when the world is on fire, everybody sells everything else they have and you buy the safe things, right? So you buy gold, the price of gold goes up and the interest rate on American and German bonds, right? The thing everybody wants to hold falls. But what that means is people are pulling money out from everywhere else in the world, right? Particularly middle income developing countries or emerging markets, right? And so you can think about capital flight might start to happen from all of Eastern Europe or right the Middle East, um, and suddenly countries that really don't have any economic or geopolitical relationship to what's going on in Ukraine find themselves in financial difficulty, right? Uh, that gives you a sense of the Russian economy, right? So again, this looks very different than the German economy or the Chinese economy or the American economy. It's basically a petrostate, right? With some metal and agricultural exports. That's the oil, global oil price has gone up. What's really interesting because of the sanctions is there's actually a 20% discount on Russian oil now, right? So there's a bunch of countries and entities that have said, we're gonna stop buying Russian oil and we're gonna move into buying oil from the Norwegians or the Canadians or the Americans. So there's actually a gap between the world oil price and the Russian oil price, and that's gonna go up, right? So that's sort of the sanctions are hitting already. This is just a little on the financial exposure, right? So this is bank exposure by country to Russia over time, right? Um, and so you see, you know, there was a big buildup, right, in the 2000s, big crash since 2014. It's never come back, right, after Crimea. Basically, Russia has been um, largely excluded from new lending. Uh, but you have a set of banks in Italy, Austria, Germany, and France that are heavily exposed, right? And so you could imagine problems spilling over into the Eurozone. Right. Um, if these banks face problems. And so the ECB, the European Central Bank, is going to have some question of how much of a backstop it wants to play um, in the months ahead. All right. So let me let me wrap up um, and just kind of think about some conclusions here. So one is these sanctions are almost unprecedented in scale, scope and speed. Right. Um, the closest analogy, I think, is Iran. Prior to the JCPOA, the Iran deal, right? The sanctions that effectively strangled and destroyed the Iranian economy. Um, this is something because Ukraine and Russia, even bigger countries in the global economy, it's on an even bigger scale. Um, and the unity that, that I mentioned is really something that's very striking. And right? I think, you know, reports of the demise of the EU and NATO and the transatlantic relationship really turned out to be exaggerated. 
Um, and you know that's something we could talk about as well. Uh, economically crippling for Russia in both the short and the long term. And again, the longer this goes on, you're really you're talking about right knocking a country back several stages of economic development, not just kind of a short-term recession or a kind of serious financial crisis. Um, these are kind of my big picture takeaways. Right? What are the geopolitical lessons? Right, money is is power. Allies are good, and institutions still matter. Right, so uh, you really, I think, have seen. Right, in, in the last week, um, how powerful the US is and the US and the EU and Western democracies are in the global economy, not only relative to Russia, but also relative to China. And I think a lot of the reports of we're in a new world and you know, American hegemony, um, those of you that have been in my classes, you know, I jo joke that American hegemony has been declining for as long as I've been alive. I'm 46 years old, right? And sort of, we're still hearing about the decline of American hegemony. We're obviously not there yet in this week. Uh, this week proved that. Um, it also proved that the world is a dangerous place and it's good to have friends, right? The US has a lot of friends right now, Russia does not. And the invigoration of these institutions, which, you know, the EU is always in crisis. We've been talking about whether NATO is obsolete. With the last administration, we were talking about whether we're going we're to stay a member, right? The rush, I think, of the Finland and Sweden um, move very quickly, um, as Jessica talked about, right? This is a club people want to be in, and these clubs still have value. Right. And I think that that's a really important lesson. Um, and the interdependence, right, um, is very, very asymmetric. Right. Russia is much more dependent on the rest of the world than the US and the Europeans are on them. Uh, and this is a term that gets thrown around in international relations recently, that interdependence is being weaponized. Right. What the sanctions are effectively is financial warfare right, or financial statecraft in the use of this leverage on trade and financial ties to sort of get what you want in the international system. Right. So I'll stop there. Thank you.